1: Hey guys, I'm Chris J, and this is VMH Magazine. Hello, hello, hello everyone, and welcome back. My name is Chris Jordan, and this is VMH Magazine. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Peter Pitts. Peter Pitts currently serves as the president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest. How are you doing today, Peter?
0: I'm doing very well, how about yourself?
1: I'm doing really well. Very happy to have you on with us today. Um, Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Well sure, thanks for asking. Um, I'm the the president of a think tank called the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest, cmpi.org, and a former associate commissioner at the U.S. FDA. So I've spent a lot of my time thinking about regulatory issues, larger public policy issues, and as of late, COVID-19 almost exclusively from a number of different public policy, patient, and FDA angles. So uh, it's fascinating from a policy perspective, and it's absolutely crucial relative to moving uh, our nation forward.
1: Absolutely. Um, What was it like for someone in your position when COVID-19 initially surfaced?
0: COVID-19 first hit my radar screen, as it did for many people, uh, when Wuhan in China closed itself down and quarantined itself because of the uh, the virus. Uh, Back then, we didn't really understand the epidemiology of the virus. All we were really seeing were these containment strategies and wondering what was really going on over in China. And part of the problem back then, looking maybe in January, was that the Chinese didn't let in uh, people from the FDA or the WHO. Uh, and that's always, you know, uh, confusing. because What you want in a situation like this is total global cooperation. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why everybody else was kind of caught playing catch up.
1: OK, so what would the normal process be for the FDA in that regard?
0: Well, in, in normal circumstances, when a country suffers under a uh, illness plague epidemic, kind of like Ebola in Africa, uh, all, of, all the global experts are allowed in to understand what's happening, to do their own tests to help the country most at risk work its way through it. And that way we get a better understanding for what's going on, what the virus is like, how the strategies work and don't work, uh, rather than than having to reinvent them from scratch every time a a, a new country uh, reaches a certain infection point.
1: Okay. Um, As it pertains to remdesivir, have there been any other drugs tested? And what makes remdesivir pertinent to those hospitalized with uh, a severe case of COVID-19?
0: Well, there are really three types of uh, uh, drugs and treatments that are being developed now for COVID-19. Uh, the first are drugs that already already exist and are approved for other uses. Those are being looked at to be repurposed to address various aspects of COVID-19. Uh, then there are experimental medicines, and remdesivir fell into that category. Remdesivir, which is developed by a country by a country by a company called Gilead uh, Science, initially developed for uh, Ebola, uh, but it was only partially successful there. But they also recognized that it's antiviral. Case. It's a, um, it, it inserts itself into the viral RNA chain and it causes the premature termination of the virus might be useful uh, for COVID-19. Uh, and some, some uh, expanded access uses of the drug in the non-trial population showed that to be true. And recently, actually last week, a, a clinical study done out of the National Institutes of Health, NIH work, Anthony Fauci works, showed that it was actually rather um, uh, effective for patients who have what's called severe manifestations of COVID-19. And it generally gets them out of the hospital uh, four days earlier and also enhances the survival rate by about uh, five to 8%. So that's, that's quite significant. So it isn't really a game changer for the general population. But for those who are hospitalized it makes a significant difference you know for 85 percent of the population that gets covid 19 uh, those people can ride it out at home uh, plenty of rest lots of liquids tlc where available and th- and they'll be okay so you know as we begin to think about reopening our economy we now understand how to uh, reduce the stress on our hospital health care resources and that's crucial and we also understand that people that generally are healthy uh, can ride it out at home the folks who are in the hospital uh, who will be getting drugs like remdelivir and hopefully others in the future are uh, often have respiratory conditions uh, or have other types of serious underlying uh, healthcare issues. So once we understand how to deal with those most at risk and understand that everybody else will basically write it out as they would any kind any of serious viral infection, I think we get a much better view on how to reopen the economy short of a
1: vaccine okay so was remdesivir tested for a specific period of time before it was used or before it was declared uh useful on covid19 because i mean you're saying that it's only used for uh for the, the the patients that are in the hospital that have severe symptoms, right? And your you know That's most right. people that don't have severe symptoms, there's no need for them to take the the remdesivir. That's correct, right?
0: That is correct. And you know remdesivir is also an an injectable, so it's not a pill. You have to go get a infusion of the drug. And the drug was tested under rigorous clinical trial standards for the uh, at risk population.
1: Okay. So as the economy begins to open up. How do you feel regarding infection rates? Do you think there will be a climb? Do you think there will be a decrease? Um, How how do you feel about that?
0: Well, you know, what's happening uh, different from one month ago uh, is that COVID-19 infection rates in large population centers along the American coast are trending down. And the crisis of hospital resources is abating. So, you know, um, on the one hand, less populated states never really reached the same levels of infection or healthcare resources constraints that we did, for example, here in New York, and also the psychological scarring that large population centers have had as well. I think the problem now is that kind of the big city elites are sneering at their country cousins, uh, believing that they're not acting responsibly as they move to reopen their economies. And the middle of the country thinks that the coasts are out of touch with their economic realities. Uh, But we have a better idea of what's happening now on on a a science-based level. So the one thing we've really got to embrace, regardless of where you live, is what I call the three cues of testing. Tests have to be quick. Uh, they have to be of a high quality. And we have to have them in quantity. We need tests that deliver swift, accurate results for Americans on demand. Having good data is really going to allow us to open the economy safer. It's going to give us the, the timing for the strategies and tactics that are going to work city by city, state by state, region by region. So coordination is essential. We need a national a philosophy, but the plans I think need to be more on a local level.
1: Okay, so do you think it's necessary for all Americans to be vaccinated?
0: I think ultimately, yes. I think you know, the way that you you know move from mitigation strategies to total containment is through vaccination, and you know the whole the whole I, the whole question of mandatory vaccinations is a very highly charged political conversation. So I'll, I'll avoid that. But I do think that when a vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available, Americans should absolutely get vaccinated. Otherwise, we're going to look through this crisis again and again and again again as we revisit uh, reinfection rates and as virus season, flu season comes back on our plate on a regular basis.
1: Okay, so, Professor Pitts, as the American people begin to get back into their daily routines, um, some of us are going back to work. Uh, restaurants are beginning to open, gyms are beginning to open, some of the beaches are beginning to open. What is your suggestion to the American people in regards to staying safe, in regards to keeping a mask on? Um, definitely touch on that for us because I'm constantly seeing an ongoing debate about whether masking is important or not. Uh, you care to talk about that for us a little bit? Well, yeah, I'm
0: sure masking is crucial. Masking not only protects you from other people. It protects other people from you. And considering that about 50% of the COVID, 50% of people who will actually come down with COVID will be asymptomatic, uh, you don't necessarily know if you're sick. So you have to be, you have to take caution and assume that you want the right thing. Um, the, the way to radically reduce deaths, again, short of, of a vaccine and open, and reopen the economy is to maintain smart policies like wearing masks, Definitely. Smart social distancing, and staggered work hours, low capacity limits for office buildings, restaurants, cafes, movie theaters, beaches, pools, recreational facilities, and enhanced personal hygiene. So in many respects, again, before, until we get a vaccine, it's personal responsibility that's going to allow us to um, continue to reopen the economy while maintaining a, a smart mitigation strategy against the virus.
1: Okay. Now, Professor Pitts, when it comes to the remdesivir, um, will there be enough to go around? Will there be enough for everyone to get vaccinated?
0: Well, right now, there are 1.5 million vials, which Gilead says is giving away for free. Uh, they, the company has said they have the manufacturing capabilities to to uh, bring out uh, a supply as needed, so that's good news. But I think the, the broader question here is, once we start getting more therapeutic, so once we get a vaccine... You know, we need to start thinking right now about manufacturing strategies. because We don't want shortages. We don't necessarily want to rely on other countries for our supply of vaccines. And we also want to make sure that uh, they're, they're the highest quality. And we also need to think about, as we ramp up manufacturing, how do we prioritize who gets vaccinated first, second, third? Obviously, you know, healthcare workers, police officers, firefighters, you know, quote unquote essential workers, people that are stocking our supermarket shelves and, and so forth. Are uh, at the front of the line, but also teachers and students, because clearly a, a vaccinated school population allows us to open schools quicker and uh, bigger. And I think that's that's something we can't forget.
1: Okay, so how long do you think it would take for everyone to get vaccinated?
0: Well, before we, we can get to that level, we have to ask the question when will a vaccine be ready? And, you know, there are uh, a number of companies working alone and collectively with academic centers and governments uh, that are working very hard on this, dozens and dozens of programs. So I'm pretty optimistic. We have lots of shots on goal. I would think they'll have a vaccine in in 10 months to a year. So once we actually have a vaccine that's approved for human use, the question then becomes, how quickly can you manufacture? it? Do you manufacture it at risk? Which means that you start manufacturing before you actually have approval. And then, how do you get it to where it needs to be in a in a strategy that you've predetermined? Because you don't want a mad rush to uh, get vaccine. You want to you want to roll it out and phase it out appropriately, so that there's no uh, no shortages and people get vaccinated as best suits uh, the public health needs of our country.
1: Okay, so I guess my next question would have to be: You said ten to twelve months would be about the timeline we're looking at to get enough of the vaccine, right?
0: Well, no, actually, to have, to have a vaccine to then manufacture. So once a vaccine is, is approved, how quickly does that take to get it? You know, get the volume you need to get it out there. And it's going to be a, a, a rolling basis. That's why you need to prioritize who gets uh, access to the vaccine first, second, third and, and so on and so forth.
1: OK, so with the country waiting to be vaccinated, do stay at home orders continue to be signed by governors? What's your take on that?
0: No, I don't, I don't think so. Be, at the end of the day, if you can take care of those most at risk uh, and make sure that they get they get properly treated and, and make it through to the other end of the tunnel, uh, everybody else, should they get infected, you know, because, you know, life is imperfect, the virus is strong, can basically, if they get sick, they'll go home and be sick for two weeks. It doesn't mean that we should all sit home and wait until nobody can get sick ever. That's, that's uh that's not realistic nor fair to the economy because clearly, you know, you know, where you stand a lot of times depends on where you sit on this issue. If you're out of work and you can't pay your rent and, uh, you know, you're struggling to get food, you have a whole different view of altering the economy relative to those sitting in the Hamptons in their beach houses, you know, watching cable television.
1: Right. Exactly. Okay. So how do we, the American people, continue to decrease the risk of COVID-19 moving forward?
0: Well, there are a couple of things. First thing I would tell people, don't don't take foolish risks. And I won't lay them out because people know what they are. Don't put yourselves in situations where you're, you're in crowds. And it just doesn't make any sense. And, and we know better. More broadly, you know, personal responsibility is your responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. Not us look after ourselves and our families, but also our neighbors and our neighborhoods and our cities and our states. You know, if we, if we embrace the concept of personal responsibility relative to social distancing and smart hygiene, uh, we, will, we will succeed.
1: Indeed, we will. Well, Professor, that's our time today. Um, where can we find you on social media?
0: I'm on, on Twitter, at Peter Pitts, P-I-T-T-S. Uh, the website for our organization is cmpi.org, and we're on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. So we, uh, we invite everybody to check us out and offer their comments.
1: Absolutely. Um, We definitely want to thank you for stopping by to keep us informed. Uh, During this time of uncertainty, you uh, definitely gave us a lot of information regarding the drug remdesivir. Uh, And we also know how to move forward as the economy begins to open up. And we appreciate you for that information.
0: My pleasure. I'm glad that I could help a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot. And um, we're hoping we can get a chance to sit down with you again. Love to do that. All right. Now Until next time. All right, everyone, we just spoke with former FDA Associate Commissioner Peter Pitts, the current president and co-founder of CMPI, which is the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Be sure to stop by cmpi.org and feel free to leave your comments. My name is Chris Jay and this is VMH Magazine. Until next time.